Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. working our way verse by verse through the book of Romans, you can turn to Romans 15. That is where we'll pick up this morning. Next week, we will finish the book of Romans, God willing. After that, we will begin a series of topical messages. I don't know how long that will go. Some people have emailed their suggestions to me. And uh, there's some interesting stuff that we can address. After that, I think we're going to do a survey-type study where we kind of do an overview and focus in on particular parts of the book of Isaiah. On Sunday mornings, for as long as we have been a church, almost 19 years as a public church, going back 25 years almost from the time we started in my living room, 
on Sunday mornings, it has always been my tradition that we were in the New Testament. And then on Wednesday nights, we've been doing our Old Testament studies, and we have covered just about every book in the Old and New Testament. We have not gone verse by verse through the book of Psalms, even though we have done the other wisdom books and are currently in Proverbs. And as we went through the Old Testament historically, not chronologically the way it's written in the Old Testament, but chronologically according to history, so that we could plug all of the prophets into their appropriate time frame. As we did that, we sort of touched on a bit of Isaiah. But the truth is, there is a whole lot of very New Testament stuff in the book of Isaiah, so much so that it is commonly called the gospel in the Old Testament. And so I think that would be not only something that we just haven't done yet, in the past 20-something years, but I think it would also be really, really beneficial to us to see how long it is that God has been saying the same thing, how he has predicted the coming of his son, how he predicted the substitutionary sacrifice, and you'll see the amazing sovereignty of God that we believe in, that we preach here at GCA. You'll see it demonstrated yet again in the book of Isaiah. So we will get there whenever we get through the topical messages and how quickly we get through the topical messages really depends on how many more suggestions you send me. So let me tell you a story. On Friday, I went to Food Lion. That's not the story. I, I was at Food Lion and, and I bought just over $100 worth of groceries. I used my check card in order to buy those groceries, just like all of us do. Almost immediately, I got an alert on my phone asking, it was my bank, and they were asking if a $100 withdrawal that was made at a Murphy's gas station connected to a Walmart in Mississippi was me. I, of course, texted back, no. And immediately my phone rang. And I was talking to my personal banker from regions from the fraud division. And she said, this got red flagged because at the exact same moment you were paying for groceries. At that exact same moment, your card was also being used at a Walmart in Mississippi to withdraw $100 cash. And so the very moment that she said that, she said, we just froze your card. And I said, well, yes, of course, because we don't want whoever that is in Mississippi to be able to do that yet again. So thank you for freezing the card. That was Friday afternoon. They were sending me a new card. It hasn't arrived here yet. I had to get a new pin. I had to go through all the security measures again. And then it was... Friday afternoon, and I didn't have any cash in my wallet because I'm so used to using my check card. But I couldn't even go to the bank and withdraw cash or to the grocery store and withdraw cash because I don't have my check card. And then the weekend came, and I don't have my check card. And then it's Sunday, and the banks are closed, and I, and I don't have my check card, and I don't have any cash. Believe me, I'm not raising an offering right now. <laughs> But suddenly it occurred to me, I can't buy, sell, or trade without the thing. I don't have the thing, the required thing that I got to have to access my money, which means that when my bank called me and said, we're cutting off the thieves from your money, they also cut me off from my money. I called Barney Johnson. We were chatting yesterday. And I mentioned that to him, that I can't, at this moment, buy, sell, or trade. And he said, and isn't it amazing how quickly that happened? He said, 30 years ago, who could have imagined such a thing? And now, everything we believe, 
which we believe that the Bible is true. Everything the Bible says is true. Everything that the Bible says is going to happen is going to happen. And here I have just walked through an exact demonstration of the very thing that the Bible says is going to one day happen to everybody who does not accept the mark. Regardless of what you want to say the mark of the beast is, however you want to debate that, the simple fact is we can now imagine A situation, a time where simply by the flick of a switch by somebody we don't know on a telephone in a different state, we can no longer access our own money. In other words, here's what I'm saying. The Bible's true, folks. And I had that on my very doorstep this weekend. Chapter 15, I'm starting in chapter 1, actually. We're not going to read the whole book, even though the whole book was a letter from Paul that was read out to the church when the church met together. So technically, I could start at the very start and read the whole thing, but I want to read chapter 1, verse 13 for you. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. He's speaking to the church there at Rome, and he's saying, I have planned to come and see you, but I've been prevented from coming thus far. His purpose for wanting to come and see them was, in order that I might obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about what that fruit is that Paul wanted to get from them. And I want to begin this morning by apologizing to Lee and Jennifer back there in the corner. Last week, when we had our meal together, I sat with Lee and Jennifer, and Lee mentioned that whenever he goes into churches, they're searching for churches, they're looking for churches, whenever he goes into churches, his quote was, they're just all about money. And I said, well, that's not GCA. In fact, you may have noticed we don't even take up an offering. People, if they feel like giving, they just put money in the box over there. And for the vast majority of our time here at GCA, I only preach on giving when it happens to be in the text. Well, it happens to be in the text this morning. (laughs) Paul was going to Rome because he wanted them to help support him on his way to Spain. He was expecting physical support. And he's going to say that the reason he expects physical support is because they kind of owe him. And we're going to look at that this morning. But it is Paul's intention to make it to Rome, but before he goes to Rome, he's going to go to Jerusalem as he has been dealing with the churches in the various areas where he has been evangelizing and building up churches. In those areas, he has been collecting an offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem. So he's headed for Jerusalem so that he can give that offering from the Gentiles to the saints at Jerusalem. And he's going to ask the saints at Rome that they join him in praying that he is delivered from the people in Jerusalem who are opposed to him. He's preaching the gospel of Christ. He's preaching freedom from the law. He is preaching salvation by grace instead of works. He has enemies in Jerusalem. And he is praying and asking the church at Rome to pray with him that he will be delivered from those enemies. But he also wants to get to Rome. Well, God intends for all of that to occur, just not the way Paul thinks it's going to occur. He's not going to go to Jerusalem and just give them the offering and then mosey on over to Rome and then get help from them on his way to Spain. What's really going to happen is that he's going to get to Jerusalem where he is going to be bound, where he's going to be arrested, and then he's going to be taken to Rome as a prisoner. He then says, I am a Roman free citizen, much to their surprise. And he pleads his case all the way to Caesar. He has a connection to the household of Caesar. And within the household of Caesar, there are Christians. 
And that's why Paul, once he is arrested, does end up for a while in a prison and in a dungeon, apparently. But then ultimately, as we get to the end of the book of Acts, we find out that he is just living in a private home. He's under house arrest, but he's allowed to have people come and go. And that's the way that he's able to write letters from Rome, letters that we still have to this very day. He doesn't expect that he's going to Rome to become a prisoner. He thinks he's going through Rome to go gain some fruit from the churches there at Rome so that he can continue on to Spain because he has a very definite plan. That plan doesn't work out. God's plan is the one that works out. Had he not ended up in a prison in Rome, we would not have what we call the prison epistles, which have a greater depth of understanding and emotion and pastoral concern than some of the other epistles that we have. I'm very moved by, very motivated by the prison epistles. We wouldn't have those had God not planned that Paul was going to go to prison. Can we apply that to ourselves? Well, yeah, we can. We all have our plans. We all make our plans. Just a couple of weeks ago, as we were reading in Proverbs, we were reading that there are plans within the hearts of men, intentions, things that we plan to do. But it's God who guides our steps. It's God who guides our way. And ultimately, regardless of whatever plans we make, James says that we shouldn't say, I'm going to do thus and thus. I'm going to go to a certain city, and I'm going to get me riches, and I'm going to do this and that. He says you should say, if the Lord wills, I will do thus and so. So regardless of what your plans are, regardless of what your intentions are, life is going to happen according to what God has intended for you. It is okay for us to go to God and tell him what we think our plan is. It's perfectly fine to go to God and say, if it's your will, this is how I would like this to work out. If it is your will, I would like this person to be healed. If it is your will, I would like to have this investment work for me. If it is your will, I would like to have these circumstances work out in this way. But... You also have to recognize that when you say the words according to your will, you're putting your circumstances into his hands. I was asked many, many years ago, do I think that prayer changes things? And the answer to that is yes, prayer does change things. It changes you. It brings you into conformity with God's will. When you go to God and pray what you want, but then you recognize that it's ultimately going to occur the way he wants it to occur, that is a way that you are humbling yourself before God and accepting whatever his will is for your life, regardless of what your determinations are. It's one of the many ways that prayer is really, really beneficial in your life. So Paul has written to the Romans and said, I've planned to come to you. I wanted to come to you, but I've been hindered thus far. I haven't been able to turn over to chapter 15. He wanted them to help him on his way to Spain. And he's going to say that here in chapter 15. And we are going to start reading at verse 18. Verse 18 of chapter 15 of the book of Romans, Paul is explaining that he is preaching the gospel among the Gentiles because he wants to preach the gospel in places where other men have not built a foundation yet. Let's see if you have learned anything. According to Paul, what is the foundation? Christ. Christ is the only foundation. He wrote to the Corinthians and he said that there's only one foundation that any man can lay. That foundation is Christ. And then he said, every man who preaches Christ, every man who builds on that foundation 
should look at and be careful at how he is building on that foundation. You can't change the foundation. The foundation already exists. The foundation is Christ, but then all of us who speak about Christ or speak his word or preach or tell friends about Jesus, we are all building on that foundation. And Paul says, be careful how you build on it. If you build wood, hay, stubble, That's all going to be burned away, though you yourself would be saved. But if you build on it, gold, silver, precious stones, things that can be tried in the fire and still remain valuable, you're going to gain a reward for that. But the foundation is always Christ. Now, Paul knows that some men have gone out into the Gentile areas and have already laid that foundation So he said, I don't want to go to places where some other man has already built the foundation so that I am just building on the foundation. He wants to go lay the foundation among people who have never heard of Christ. He wants to go out and preach the gospel. He wants to go out and talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of the only Holy One. He wants to lay the foundation. I think... To some degree, it's because Paul wants to make sure that the doctrine that people first believe is the correct one, that the teaching that they hear about Christ is the accurate teaching about Christ. He wants to go lay the foundation. Starting at verse 18, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in obedience of the Gentiles By word and deed, that word obedience there is obedience to the faith, understanding the basic doctrines of the faith and them coming to obedience in Christ, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles in word, the word of God, their acceptance of the word, and indeed the things that they do as a result of understanding it. In powers and signs and wonders, which certainly Paul has worked, those signs and wonders. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is the only way anybody is ever brought to obedience in Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit is the only way it's done. It's not done because anybody is a really good orator. It's not done because somebody convinced you. It's not done because you heard a really good argument and you thought, oh, yeah, logically, that's inescapable. It's because the Holy Spirit got a hold of you and the power of the Holy Spirit converted you and brought you to an understanding and belief, a faith in these things that are true. That's the obedience that the Gentiles came to in word and deed, in powers and signs and wonders, and in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Do you understand what Paul just did there? We mentioned it last week. I want to drive it home. What Paul has just said is the scripture, which he obviously believes is the God-breathed word of God, which means that everything that's in the scripture the Old Testament, by our reckoning. Everything that's in the scripture is good and solid and definite because God said it. And so since God has already said that there are Gentiles who are going to come to faith, Paul sees that as the motivation to get out there and tell people. He knows he's going to be resisted. He knows he's going to be fallen on. He knows he's going to end up being beaten. He knows he's going to be stoned. He knows that terrible things are going to happen because there are people who are going to adamantly resist this thing that he's saying. Among the Romans, among the Gentiles, among those who are under Roman dominion, 
They've all been taught a whole pantheon of gods, and he's going to undermine all their gods, including Caesar. He's going to undermine all their gods and say there's only one God, and Jesus Christ is his only son, and so your whole pantheon doesn't exist. That does not make people happy. That makes people upset. He knows among the Jews, as he says, Jesus is the very son of God. They're going to be really upset about that because he has already been accused of telling people to forego Moses, to abandon the history of the Jews. He goes to Jerusalem and argues, no, no, I'm not arguing that we forego Moses or the law. What I'm saying is it's all been fulfilled. It's all satisfied in Christ. And to make things worse, this Christ who you killed with wicked hands, God raised up again, and he's alive and living at this moment and sitting on the right hand of God. That does not make the opposition happy. That makes them put people in prisons. And so Paul knows what he's going to have to go through, and yet he knows that if he gets out there and tells it, some people are going to hear it and understand it. And come to faith in Christ. And how does he know that? Because the word of God says so. The word of God has already declared that some Gentiles are going to believe. So Paul sees his mission as go out and tell as many Gentiles as I can. Because some of them are going to get it. Like Lydia, the seller of purple. We read in the book of Acts that God opened her heart so that she could listen to, so she could understand, so she could attend to the things that Paul was saying. Okay, that's a good example of what I'm talking about. There were Gentiles out there that God was going to move on to understand the gospel when they heard it. So Paul saw his mission as to go out and tell it so that they would hear it and bring them to faith so that he could pluck some brands from the fire. And so he says... The word of God says this. They who had no news of him are going to see him. That's part of his motivation for not going where other men had already built the foundation. He wanted to go to those who had not heard at all because he took God at his word to such an extent, such a degree, that when Paul read, they who had no news of him are going to see him, He said, well, that's who I need to go to. I need to go to those who have no news of him. And if other men, other apostles had already come and laid the foundation of Christ, well, then they already have news of him. So I'm just building on another man's foundation. I want to go to places where they know nothing about Christ. They who had no news of him shall see him, and they who have not heard shall understand. That's his guarantee. By the way, as I said last week, and I don't mean to be too repetitious, and I don't mean to be too repetitious, (laughs) this is our motivation to this very day. Why do we evangelize? Why do we tell people about Christ? Why do we keep meeting here? Why do we keep proclaiming the same stuff over and over again? Why do we put it out on the internet? Why do we make videos and teach folks why do we continue to put the word of God out into a world that by and large doesn't care about it why do we keep doing it why do we keep proclaiming the word of God over and over and over again it's because the Bible in the Old and the New Testament says God has an elect people he has chosen his people It turns out that I, apparently, was one of those people. I was even raised in the Lutheran church. Good little Lutheran church acolyte boy I was. But nobody had told me the gospel. It wasn't until somebody actually explained to me the gospel of Jesus Christ and the things that are going on in this Bible that I recognized that, oh my gosh, I'm going to be okay with God eternally because of work he did and work that his son did. It has nothing to do with me or my good works. And suddenly I was elated by my relationship with God and with Christ that he himself established because he chose me before the foundation of the world. But it took somebody telling me that 
for me to get it. And I think most every one of you can think back to a time where somebody told you about Christ. That's the methodology. That's how God designed it. God determined that people were going to tell other people. And they were going to bring the word of God and teach the word of God to each other. And through that method, people who have been chosen and enlightened by the Holy Spirit, the lights are going to go on and they're going to understand They're going to get the stony heart removed. They're going to get the new heart put in them. They're going to become born again. They're going to be regenerated. That's all biblical language. They're going to come to an understanding of the things of God in Christ that they never understood before in their life. But it takes somebody coming and telling you. And that's a great motivation for evangelization. You tell people. You tell people. You tell people. And every once in a while... Someone gets it. And when they get it, you can see the activity and the work of God on display. Right here in human history. Because you know that it wasn't you. And you know that it wasn't your evangelistic abilities. It wasn't the methodology that you used. It wasn't how convincing or good looking you are. It was nothing more than the Holy Spirit of God doing what only the Holy Spirit of God can do in quickening and awakening those people who God had already determined to bring to himself eternally. And when you get to be part of that, oh, it's good. It's fun. I mean, actual fun. I mean, I actually enjoy it thoroughly. I love it when the lights go on and you can tell that somebody just understood the things of God. Well, Paul is convinced that he's going to go to places where nobody has spoken to these people before. Nobody has told them anything because he has the guarantee from the word of God that some of these Gentiles are going to hear and understand. And that's his motivation to get out and take the beatings and take the shipwrecks and take the hungering and take all the imprisonments, take everything he has to go through because some people are going to come to salvation. And those people who come to salvation are his reward for all the work that he's going through and all the pain that he suffers through. So he says, for this reason... This very purpose of preaching the gospel where others have not built a foundation. For this very reason, I've often been hindered from coming to you. So I wanted to come to Rome. I wanted to come through and have you help me on my way to Spain. That was my intention. But there were so many places to go. There were so many more people to tell. There were so many more regions for me to reach. But then it appeared that he kind of ran out of places to go because he says this in verse 23. But now with no further place for me in these regions and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints, the Hagias of God. At Jerusalem, those who have come to faith among the Jews at Jerusalem, I have to go and serve them. I have to go and minister to them first, and then I plan to come to you. And these regions that I am limited to, remember that Paul was reasonably limited. He attempted to go to Bithynia. He attempted to head east at one point, and the Holy Spirit constrained him. Said, no, he wasn't to go east, and yet he got a call from Macedonia. He saw the vision of Macedonia saying, come here, help us. So he headed west. And if you look at the maps in the back of your Bible, there's probably one that is the missionary journeys of St. Paul. And you can look at all the places where Paul traveled and where his journeys were. 
And he felt like he had kind of covered that Asiatic region there by the uh, Mediterranean Sea. He had kind of covered that whole coastal area and all the way up into Macedonia. And really, if he was looking for people who had never heard the name of Christ, if he was looking for places where there were no churches, he was kind of running out of regions to go to. And so he said, well, then I'm going to go across the sea. And I'm going to come to Rome. And I'm going to go to Spain. Because my motivation is to go find people who have never heard this. So he says, for this reason, I've been hindered from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions. And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing. And to be helped on my way there by you. See, he expected support, physical support. He expected monetary support. He expected clothing. He expected food. He expected to be helped on his way to Spain, helped by the church in Rome. But when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, then I'm going to go on to Spain. But right now, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, serving, ministering to the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, Paul's going to build a little equation here when it comes to giving. The first thing he has just told us is that those churches in the large areas of Macedonia and Achaia, there were a lot of churches in those areas And as Paul traveled through there, he was taking up offerings to take to the saints in Jerusalem. And the first thing he says about them is they were pleased to do it. Because Paul's theology of giving is God loves a cheerful giver. And I've told you many, many times, that's the Greek word hilaros. It just moved into the English language as hilarious. God loves happy giving. He loves cheerful giving. So the Macedonian churches and the churches in Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. That's the first half of his equation. The second half of the equation is, and they owe them. Now, in what way do the Gentile saints owe the saints at Jerusalem? Well, this is all part and parcel of everything we know about how God is working through Israel and the Gentile nations. As I've said over and over and over and over again, as we've been going through the book of Romans, I have said to you, every covenant that you find in the Bible belongs to Israel. It just does. And Paul, in arguing about the advantages that the Israelites have, he says the covenants are theirs, the promises are theirs, the forefathers are theirs. The oracles are theirs. The prophets are theirs. In fact, the whole of what we call the Old Testament was theirs. They were the people who maintained the word of God on planet Earth. And the only way that the Gentiles got to hear about it was because the Jews had retained it. And so the Gentiles owe the Jews Because the Jews are the ones who were the people of God on planet Earth, who the blessings of God were flowing through Israel and then out to the nations of the world. And so the nations of the world who have come to faith owe Israel, owe the Jews, owe the saints at Jerusalem, because the saints at Jerusalem were the first people on the planet to believe in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was Jewish. So... God chose the nation of Israel for that task, and they performed their task. Sometimes they performed it better, sometimes they performed it worse, but they did it, and then Christ ultimately comes through the nation of Israel to fulfill the promises made to Israel, to confirm the promises made to the forefathers of Israel, and now the Gentile nations are being awakened To the Jewish Messiah, they are coming to faith in Christ and gaining eternal life as a result. And therefore, they owe the Jewish nation for the fact that the Jews, 
the believing Jews in Jerusalem are still there, still believing, still proclaiming the word, still sending out apostles out to the Gentile nations. So Paul's attitude is, you owe them. They went through all that early persecution. They went through all that early holding to the word against practically all odds. They've been horribly persecuted for your sake so that the gospel would be retained on planet Earth. You, you owe them. Here's how Paul put it. Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, and they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. The Gentiles are indebted to the Jews at Jerusalem, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, in other words, if the Gentiles now have a share in the spiritual things that belong to Jerusalem, that belong to the Jews, what things? Well, the things Paul keeps talking about. The prophets, the word of God, the promises, the Jewish Messiah, the guarantees of a sovereign God, the Holy Spirit of God. Those are all, according to Paul, Israel's things. They all belong to Israel, and I think we've seen that enough times as we've been reading through the book of Romans. And now Gentiles are sharing in that. If the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, then they, the Gentiles, are indebted, obligated to minister to the Jews in material things. Because the Jews at Jerusalem were deeply impoverished. Because remember that once they came to faith in Christ, that was essentially a death sentence. It broke up families. It broke up businesses. They could no longer go in and buy, sell, and trade in the temple. And so many of their businesses were destroyed. The leaders at Jerusalem were adamant in their opposition to all things Christ. Naturally, because if Jesus genuinely is the son of God, the very Jesus who called the leaders in Jerusalem whitewashed sepulchers, the very Jesus who said to them, you compass land and sea in order to make one proselyte, and then you make him twice the child of hell you are. Jesus just out there making friends and influencing people. You look clean on the outside and inside you're all dead men's bones and uncleanness. Okay, so they killed him for that. And now there's people in Jerusalem who believe he's alive again. People who are going around claiming they've seen him. Well, what does that do for the Jewish leaders? They really want to just stomp this out. This upsets their livelihood. This upsets their political authority and power in Jerusalem. This undermines their ability to wield their power over other people. It undermines them utterly and completely. They want this thing stopped. And yet there are these believers in Jerusalem who are still holding on and still believing. Can you see why they ended up impoverished? And that sort of particular persecution that's happening in Jerusalem, both by Roman authorities and Jewish authorities, is not like what's happening in Gentile areas. And so the Gentiles who share in the spiritual things of the Jews are obligated, according to Paul, to help the saints at Jerusalem because they're the ones who are taking the slings and arrows. They're on the front line. They've put their lives on the line, and they are paying a stiff, heavy price for what they believe. But had the saints at Jerusalem not continued in the faith, there would be no faith to spread to the Gentiles. You understand me? Yes, sir. So look at the equation Paul built. Yes, he says, it's appropriate 
that you joyfully are going to give to them, but you're also obligated to them. And the exchange he sets up is you are obligated because they shared their spiritual things with you. Therefore, you should share your material things with them. That is part of Paul's theology of giving, and we don't just find it here. In fact, at one point, he applies it to himself. Keep your finger where you are and look over at 1 Corinthians 9 for a moment. We're going to hone in on verse 11, but let's start reading before that so that you can understand that the context is Paul talking about giving and receiving within the church environment. Let's start at verse 6. He's asking about Barnabas, his traveling companion, and himself. And he says, do not Barnabas and I, don't we have the right to refrain from working? He just means to refrain from working a job. Shouldn't we receive support? for the work that we're doing here among you. Now he's going to argue that, yes, he should be receiving support from them, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense. If you got a draft letter in the mail, and it said what day you were supposed to show up for service, but then it said to you, bring your own clothes, bring your own gun, you you can drive your own car into battle if you want, You go, wait, wait, that's too much expense that I'm incurring to come be part of your service. Mm -hmm. He's saying even Roman soldiers understand that when they are inscripted into service, and many, many people joined the service in Rome because it was a pretty good job. Because there was an expense that the Senate would incur in order to have a standing army. So whoever serves as a soldier at his own expense. Or who plants a vineyard and then doesn't eat the fruit of it? If you worked all the planting season to plant yourself a good vineyard, and then when it came time to harvest the grapes, everybody around you was invited to come in, stomp out the grapes, have some wine, but you didn't get any? You'd think, well, what was the point of that? Why was I out there growing vines if I don't get to partake of the fruit of the vine? Or who tends a flock and then doesn't use the milk of the flock? If you tend to a flock, if you work as a shepherd, you're going to eat from the flock. You're going to drink from the flock. In other words, if you do the work, you deserve the payment. Verse 8, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? In other words, Paul is saying, I didn't just make that up. Or doesn't the law also say the very same thing? For the law says, the law of Moses says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. In other words, when you hook up a team of oxen to a plow and and the oxen are going to drag the plow through the dirt, you don't put a muzzle on them. If they want to thresh out the wheat and as they're threshing through the wheat, they eat some of it so that they have the strength to keep going. He says, well, see, that ox is working in the very field that is also sustaining him, also taking care of him. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then Paul asks, God is not concerned about oxen here, is he? In other words, Paul is saying a principle is being laid out here. It's not ultimately about oxen. It's about people who work in the field being able to make their living, getting their sustenance from the field. Verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow In hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing from the crops. So, verse 11 if we sowed spiritual things into you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? 
See, that's Paul's same theology of giving that we saw in Romans. He was saying that the Gentiles were obligated to the Jews at Jerusalem to give them material things because they had shared in their spiritual things. Now Paul applies it on a personal level and says, I've brought you these spiritual things. I've brought them to you at great cost to myself, and I've brought them to you for your benefit. You're the one who gains eternal life as a result. So if I have brought these spiritual things to you, is it really a big deal if I share in your material things? I mean, what's some of your food compared to eternal life? That seems like a pretty good exchange. What is eternal life, peace, and grace with God when it's compared to what's in your wallet? So that is Paul's basic theology of giving. It is all still grace giving. You'll notice that he doesn't say you have to do mandatory tithing. And notice that he doesn't go back to any of the sacrifices of the Old Testament and say it is incumbent on you to keep these. It is still part of grace giving, but your grace giving is based on the joy that you have in giving, the cheerfulness that you get in giving. But there's also an obligation. And the obligation is, God saved you. God brought you this wisdom, this knowledge, this joy, this peace. And so, however you learned that, whoever brought it to you, if they labored to bring it to you, you owe them. Whenever I say things like this, I understand that it sort of makes it sound like I'm up here saying, look, you all owe me. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there was a very, very high price paid through the centuries to get to this point to bring the gospel to you. And that obligates you to be kind to each other, to be generous to each other, to be good to each other, and also to support the work of the gospel so that we can keep telling the gospel to more and more people because the world in which we live requires money to accomplish that. But we don't tell you how much to give. We don't tell you when to give. If you feel motivated to give, put something in the box over there. That's how we have lived now for almost 19 years, and it has worked out fine for us. But you're obligated. You get it? Yes, sir. Okay. Back in Romans 15. Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, and they were pleased to do so because they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, then they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, is going to Jerusalem to give them the offering that was collected for them. Therefore, when I have finished this, And I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs. Very interesting phrase. It's just Paul's way of saying, when I have accomplished it, I have sealed it. Sealing is finishing something. When I have actually gone to Jerusalem, actually given them the collection that was raised for them, then I'm going to have sealed the fruit. Notice his language of fruit. Remember earlier he said that he wanted to come to Rome because he wanted some fruit from them. He's talking about monetary, beneficial, material stuff. When I have sealed this fruit of theirs to the saints in Jerusalem, then I will go on by way of you on to Spain. How many times has he mentioned it? I mean, he keeps bringing it up. I'm going to Spain. I'm going to be a Spaniard. I'm going to speak some Spanish. I'm going to... (laughs) Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Okay, so yeah, it might cost you a little something. Yeah, you are going to have to help me make it to Spain, give me some material blessings to get me on to Spain. But the benefit is still yours. Because when I come, I'm coming in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Paul, the same Paul who 
when he is shipwrecked and gets to the Isle of Malta, performs miracles, signs, wonders on Malta. That's an ability that Paul has that he's going to bring to Rome. I think he's saying some people among you are going to be healed. Some of you are going to be blessed spiritually. Some of you are going to understand the word more completely. Some of you are going to see the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are going to speak in tongues. Some of you, you're going to feel the blessing of Jesus Christ when I get there because it seems to follow Paul wherever he goes. So he tells them, I'm going to come to you, but the benefit is yours. And I want to come to you. So now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit that can be read by the love that the Holy Spirit has for you, or it can be read by my love and your love of the Holy Spirit and the gifts and the blessings that are attendant in the Holy Spirit. Either way, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me so that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judah. Earlier, we saw Paul refer to the obedience of the Gentiles. And I told you specifically that means the obedience to the faith of Christ. The obedience of what Christianity is. Not a bunch of do's and don'ts, but an appropriate life, an appropriate living, and being obedient to the word of God. Being obedient to the doctrines of Christianity. Being obedient to the teaching that is laid out by Paul And notice that he says, in Judea, there are some who are disobedient, not obedient to the faith. People who hate Christianity and people who hate everyone who is associated with Christianity. And so he says, pray for me because I'm going to be praying. So you pray with me. Look at the way he says it. By Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, I want you to strive always with me in your prayers to God for me. In other words, I'm going to be praying to God. I'm going to be praying before I get there because I know how bad it's going to be. I understand Jerusalem. I get the mess that is Jerusalem right now. And so I'm going to Jerusalem because I have a purpose. I'm taking a gift that was given by the Gentiles to the saints at Jerusalem. Therefore, I have to go to Jerusalem. But please pray with me that when I get to Jerusalem, those who are disobedient to the faith do not overwhelm me. And by the way, he gets to Jerusalem. A prophet predicts to him that he's going to end up bound and taken to Rome. And that is exactly what occurs. So he knows what he's praying about. He's praying, please, please pray that when I get to Jerusalem, I can just kind of slip in, give him the money, slip back out, no big deal. But that's not the way it goes. And Paul gets an inkling. He has an understanding that that may not be the way it goes, that when he gets to Jerusalem, people are gunning for him. People are out to get him. And when the word gets out that Paul is in Jerusalem, sure enough, they come and arrest him. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by our love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service, my ministering to Jerusalem saints may prove acceptable to the saints. That the saints in Jerusalem will accept this gift that came from Gentiles. That they will understand that I brought it to them. That they'll understand that this is the fruit of the Gentiles. And the fruit of their obedience to the faith that came flowing to the Gentiles through the saints at Jerusalem. And therefore it's an acceptable, it's a good, it's a proper, it's an understandable gift. And hopefully they'll see it that way as well. So that it may prove to be acceptable to the saints so that I can then leave Jerusalem so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God that I may find refreshing rest 
in your company. Notice one more time. Even as Paul stated what his intentions were, even as Paul has laid out for them what he's going to do, delivering the offering to Jerusalem, then leaving Jerusalem and coming to them, he's asking for their prayers as he's going in, and then he says that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. He keeps saying that over and over again because he recognizes that whatever happens is the will of God. The same way that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, if it were possible, take this cup from me. He understood how bad the upcoming events were going to be, but he finished his prayer with, but not my will. Your will be done. Paul keeps saying it over and over again. If I get to come to Rome, it's by the will of God. If I get to come to Rome in joy, it's by the will of God. Hmm. Turns out he gets to come to Rome, not in joy, but imprisoned and in chains. And he writes that that's the will of God. Hmm. It's the will of God, whatever it is that occurs in Paul's life. He sees that plainly and clearly. So now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's just apply these last two verses as much as we can, and then we'll call it a morning. It's already been a morning, but now we will admit that it's a morning. (laughs) By the will of God, whatever it is that occurs in your life, the good, the bad, the blessings, the difficulties, it's all by the will of God. It's all ultimately serving his purpose. Now, it's easy for us to see the blessings as God's purpose because, hey, God likes us. Why wouldn't he? Hey, yeah. That's not the only place where God is sovereign over your life. The God of the valley is still the God on the mountain, is still the God in the next valley. Whatever you go through in your life, it is the will of God that you go through that because it always ultimately serves his purpose, even if it doesn't serve the purposes that you designed for yourself. When did you learn more important things about God and faith? When you were happy and everything was great? Bluebird of happiness, kumbaya, rainbow over your shoulder. Everything is going fine and dandy for you. Is that when you're thinking about the things of God? Is that when you're on your knees praying to God? Is that when you're crying out to God? No. We all just agreed to that. And if we can figure it out, God can figure that out. When are you on your knees before God? When are you thinking about the things of God? When are you crying out to God? When are you most in need of God? It's when things go bad. It's when things go hard. When things are difficult. That's when you're most dependent on God. He knows that. And he's going to take you through those things to build your faith. He's going to take you through those things so that you can pray those prayers that do change things as those prayers change you. He's going to do that for you on purpose because Paul has said already in this book that all things work together for good to those who love God according to his purpose. Not according to your purpose. If God was willing to listen to my purposes, oh, what a dandy life I could construct for me. But according to his purpose, and his purpose is that I wind up in eternity in his presence. That's his purpose. And he's going to do whatever is necessary to get me there. And he knows how hard-headed and difficult I can be. And he will break me. And he will take me through the circumstances of life that teach me to be dependent on him and to give up on my own ego and my own ability and my own self-sufficiency until I am crying out to him for absolutely everything. And the only way I'm going to learn that is if he takes me through the trials and the difficulties of life. So, not my will. Your will be done. And if that's the way you are living... If that's the way you view your life, if that's the way you understand the circumstances of life, well then, verse 33 can be true of you. And the God of peace. Paul refers to God many different ways. 
he refers to him as the creator of heaven and earth. He created everything and then is omnipotent over everything. He's the one who Paul, when he was up on Mars Hill, he described as the judge of everything. The one who is the decider of life and death. Paul uses a lot of different language to try to express the many facets, personalities, and characteristics of this God that we find in the Bible. But I don't think I have a more favorite description of God than the God of peace. The end of the againstness. Because you and God were against each other. You were an enemy of God when he decided to save you. And so the God of peace stops the againstness, stops the warfare, brings you both into one heart and one mind until you're willing to live out your life trusting that that God has got you no matter what circumstances you go through. May that God be with you all. How good is that? May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Questions? Pardon me? Well, I'm glad because Paul is pretty clear. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.